The comments that we are hearing from the Black community are very specific about what our actual fears are. So one fear is the vaccine was not tested enough on us. The truth about that is we don't like it if it's tested on us and we don't like it if it's not tested on us. So that's a hard one for us to actually win. Hi, from the Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Jason Johnson. You're listening to What's In It For Us. Oh, Jason Johnson, how I missed you. So listen, today we have a fantastic show. COVID vaccine expert, doctor, mom extraordinaire, my sister, Dr. Florencia Greer-Polite is joining us today to talk about COVID vaccine, which she took the first and the second shot. We'll also talk about the insurrection. Jason, why are people in your country trying to take down the Capitol and kidnap elected officials? That's two. We'll talk about some of the Black police officers who were there at the Capitol, who were trying to save democracy and also all the elected officials inside the building, and they essentially saved the day. And then also the middle-class nature of these protests. A lot of people always want to talk about Trump supporters as hillbillies coming in from the deep woods to come in and support their man. These are people who took flights and private jets and took time off of work. And it was a pretty mixed class crowd. Lastly, I want us to talk about the business as usual that continued the evening of January 6th. We know that many members of Congress wanted to certify the ballots, but some of those speeches and some of that behavior and even the tone was as if we didn't just see a coup happening in the hallowed halls of Congress and Confederate flags being waved. So where do we go up until January 20th and where do we go after January 20th is what I want to know. What are your thoughts, Dr. Johnson? So I just want to say up front that it's not fair that Dr. Greer gets to play show and tell with her sister and no one ever wants to meet my family at all. No one invites my family anywhere. What are we ashamed of my family? We can't come on the show. That's the first thing. I just had to get that out. That's very important to me. Second thing is as somebody who has been in Washington, D.C. during this nonsense shenanigans, I will tell you that the depth and breadth of ridiculousness that these people engaged in is something that we're going to have a grand old time talking about because I've been talking to several people around here about it. The fact that people don't seem to understand what this means going forward and what this means post the January 20th inauguration is going to be terrifying. But while it's abundantly clear that America, the government, and Joe Biden need to get their crap together, the most important question and the question that drives every podcast is what's in it for us? So before we get started, let's talk about what's in our timeline. Jason, I want to bring up the fact that quite a few individuals are being identified who were on the mall protesting and rioting and insurrecting, if you will, on January 6th. And now that it's time for them to go back to their various locales, many of them are finding themselves on a no-fly list. So these are people who supported a travel ban and they themselves are now part of a travel ban. What are your thoughts on that? What's that phrase that old black men use, pay the check that your ass can't cash? I mean, mm-hmm. like, basically, <laughs> basically, you wrote a check, your ass can't cash. That's what's happening here. I am galled. I flew from Atlanta after the Senate elections, which we've almost completely forgotten about because we had to deal with an insurrection. But I flew from Atlanta, and there were two MAGA people who were on my plane. One was this young white guy who had flown from Washington State down to Atlanta, Georgia, to walk and volunteer for Leffler and Purdue, and then was getting on a plate to participate in the Million MAGA March in D.C. This kid looked like he was ratty hair, mop hair, 22-year-old kid. This kid couldn't have been more than a college-age student. So right off the bat, anecdotally, these aren't all poor people. This is some spring break-level nonsense for a lot of these people there. And I think that's the part of it that a lot of people don't understand. And so, of course, if you can afford to fly there, you're going to be all the more shocked when you find out you can't fly home. And the one thing about it that I'll say is all these people scream and cry. There are some videos out there that are incorrect. Yes. Some of those videos that are saying these are people coming home 
home. No, these are videos from one or two years ago. Some, it's just white people acting inappropriately. And some of the other videos are people complaining about masks. So when you retweet these, make sure that you find out that it's a video that's actually from people coming back from the insurrection. Because if you want to clown people, you want to make sure you're clowning them appropriately. You want to clown appropriately and accurately. I think, Jason, though, you said something really quickly that we need to circle back in. Because on January 6th, we woke up in the morning to celebrate the work of Black women, to yes. deliver to U.S. senators from the state of Georgia to go and do the work in Washington, D.C. Two firsts, right? An African-American man who's going to represent the state of Georgia for the very first time, and a Jewish-American man who's going to represent the state of Georgia for the first time. So we have this elation about what Black women were able to do for democracy, not just the Democratic Party. And then fast forward just a few hours later, we have primarily white men who are literally ripping down the halls of Congress. But there were quite a few women there too, which I always find important to note and point out. The white women who were there with their sons and their husbands supporting this behavior. Yes, I was talking this morning to one of our colleagues. I didn't have this person's permission, but they were downtown working when this happened and ended up walking with this crowd. And what she told me is she's like, I was shocked at the number of women that I saw. She's like, I was in a crowd of about 100 people making my way to work and there's tons and tons and tons of women, which is an image that I don't think we see enough. Uh, the face of white women behind this kind of violence, the face of white women behind this kind of terrorism. But I also think in addition to the no-fly list, and we'll talk about this when we get into more detail about the insurrection itself, I think what's also funny about the no-fly list is it demonstrates not just privilege, but like the lack of depth in their revolution. These are the same people who supported the Muslim ban. You know, keeping Muslims from getting on planes just for who they are and what they believe. But you think you can actually do something. You think you can go and run roughshod over the federal government for 12 hours and you're going to go home, have the continental breakfast at the Holiday Inn and then hop on United and head back to Dallas? That's not how this works. But it is and it isn't right. because we still know that quite a few people actually did do that. They did urinate outside of the Capitol. They did rip down signs and steal mail and graffiti. I would call it vandalism, not graffiti. Graffiti is art. They were able to go check out of their hotels or spend the night there, fly home, many of them, and then they were busted. This reminded me of the Dylan Roof. You get a hamburger before we even take you in and there's not a scratch on you. This is the guy that was dressed up as the shaman. His mother is complaining that he's not getting his vegan organic meals while he's in custody. So the privilege, the unmitigated gall, where it's just like, how dare you punish me? And I'm fascinated by this, but I didn't do anything and, and I'm just a woman right. or I'm a right. mom or I'm a child. Because the same way we keep seeing Mark Zuckerberg as a boy or we talk about the Trump kids as children, even though they're grown people who are- And these people in their 40s. They're grifting the government as adults. And so this idea that white people who behave badly are always children, where it's like, well, they didn't know. Whereas Tamir Rice, 12 years old, is like, well, he should have known. He's a grown-ass man and he shouldn't have had that toy gun. How are we equating these two as the same? It's an audience of one. It's whatever white person is willing to listen to this nonsense. Because quite frankly, the vast majority of country, the vast majority of white people in America wouldn't necessarily see a 40-year-old man or a 35-year-old man as a child. Certainly if they've been a victim of some particular level of violence. But you can make that argument to thought leaders. You can make that argument to conservative outlets. And it gets reverberated over and over and over again until there's some petty party over the fact that these people were unwittingly or wittingly engaged in an act of not just violence and insurrection, but also were hunting for more people to harm. Like, that's the part that's funny. It's like you were trying to go hurt people. You weren't trying to have a conversation. You weren't running there with, you weren't Martin Luther. You weren't trying to bang some MAGA rules on the front door. You were trying to go there to crack some skulls open. My personal favorite, Dr. Greer, is not just the guy who flew there in a private jet, but the other dude who was actually in the Capitol building with the mask 
full cosplay from like Silent Hill mm-hmm. and he had the arm ties and everything else like that. And his wife ratted him out. Seven whole days. Not a word from you. His ex-wife was like, he's done. I'm loving all the ex-wives who were like, oh, I knew that fool. Oh, I know. He's there. I had to deal with this bullshit for years. They are so ready to make that call. Well, I guess I'm just still scratching my head where I'm just like, what are you so angry about? You have pension. You have actually good jobs because most of these people aren't from the hills putting in their good tooth coming down with Jethro and them. They are teachers. They are people that we see at Target. They are people who have jobs. Some of them are law enforcement. There are people who work at corporations, far too many, retired and active. And so when we see these folks, there are these assumptions that they're these backwards folks. They absolutely are not. But this anger, I'm like, but you went to good public schools. You were able to go to a state school. You have a pension. The American dream worked for you. Even having a 400 year head start. What is the anger about? I want to make something clear also to smack back at every last one of the far left crazy folks who are still talking about some ridiculous notion of economic anxiety or whatever. See, Dr. Grimm wouldn't know this because every time she comes to D.C., she's crashing at one of our places. But for the rest of you who have to pay for it. I got friends, Jason. Don't be mad. I got friends. Exactly. You got friends. Three days in D.C. is going to cost you about $1,000. Between your flight, you can't find a hotel in Washington, D.C. for less than $175. Not where these people were staying because we heard the complaints. My friends in D.C. were talking about, you saw these people outside eating pancakes and everything else like that. So we're talking, your flight is about $250 round trip. You spend it $175 a night. You can't fight a revolution without a full stomach. So if you have $1,000 to blow in January, right after payday, when 50 million Americans are out of work because of COVID, you have nothing to complain about. Nothing to complain about because that's not a cheap trip. The Million Man March, you know how people showed up for the Million Man March? There was a whole movie about it. Spike Lee made. It's called Get on the Bus. Brothers had to get on buses and drive 12 hours. This is Get on Delta and Southwest. First class, some of them. When I saw the charter jet, I was like, okay, so this is real because I think part of the way Republicans have been able to be so successful, especially in this moment, is that they keep brushing it off. It's like, oh, the economic anxiety people. It's just poor people who are angry. It's just them. No, it absolutely is not. You don't get 74 million votes from just the few people in the rural parts and the trailer parks. You don't do that. I thought it was fascinating the number of owners of the teams in the playoffs who supported Donald Trump, who gave him millions of dollars for every election. Well, because they're all like Trump. Most NFL owners are crazy right-wingers. The only league that has nominally liberal people from time to time is the NBA. Time to time. Don't forget your boy from the Clippers. Remember, he was a wild one. That's what I'm saying. I said from time to time. I ain't talking about the owner of the Cavs. And I'm not saying these guys are liberal. I'm just saying they're not as vehemently hostile as some of these other folks. But you have so many people who gave money to Donald Trump. You have so many people who gave money. I was talking, again, one of my friends today ran into this guy who was a street vendor. And he's like, oh yeah, I don't support Donald Trump, but I'm selling Trump flags for $100. Do you know what kind of money you have to have to pull out of your pocket and buy from a former homeless person? And here's the thing. It doesn't mean that just because you have money, you don't have grievances. But to go to your core question, Dr. Greer, what are these people so angry about? What they're angry about at its core is that they don't feel powerful enough. They've never felt powerful enough. They feel physically, emotionally, sexually, and politically disempowered. That's why the far right's always talking about cuckolds. That's why the far right's always talking about fighting back. That's why the far right's always talking about broad shoulders. Yeah, there's a lot of eroticism in this as well. And this is why men are having heart attacks because their blood is pumping and they can't even take it. Well, listen, we'll have to pause there for this week, but I'm sure we will be back, sadly, because these folks are advertising that they want to do this again across all 50 states. And so that is what's in it for us.
What's in it for us, fam? We have a special guest for today's episode. She's an associate professor of clinical obstetrics and gynecology and chief of the Division of General Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. I would like to welcome my sister, Dr. Florencia Greer-Polite, a.k.a. Rennie Greer, a.k.a. Ren Ren, a.k.a. the best big sister ever. So let me get this out of the way. Let's do some business. Medical disclaimer. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers with any questions they have regarding a medical condition. So therefore, listen to the podcast, but go see a doctor if you got something wrong with you, okay? I got this rash here, right, exactly. and I was wondering <laughs> if you could help. Jason got a rash, ain't gonna right. say nothing. You know what? It came from hard work. Okay, that's, I'm breaking out from hard work. Thank you very much, Dr. Greer. So I get the first question to Dr. Poli. Thank you so very much. I have heard a lot about you, and I've seen pictures, and none of my questions have anything to do with that. So just right off the bat, why did you tell take the COVID-19 vaccine? Why did you take it? Were you forced to by your job? Did you want to? Were you trying to get superpowers? Why'd you take the vaccine? First off, Jason, I want to say thank you guys so much for having me as your first guest on your podcast. I am in love with my little sister, Chrissy Greer, um, aka Lil Sis, aka Sissy. But I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys about something that is so important, which is the COVID-19 vaccine. So Jason, to answer your question, I was not forced to take this vaccine at all. I not just volunteered. I went on the first day that it was possibly available to us at Penn Medicine. And I took it because the last nine months has been the worst nine months of my professional career. I have watched numerous, numerous people, family members, patients, friends, colleagues become very sick from COVID-19, die from COVID-19, get strokes and other really bad outcomes from the coronavirus. And this is the first opportunity I saw for hope, the first chance I saw for us to turn the corner on this pandemic, which at this point is at 4,000 cases a day. We have already passed the 9-11 a day. We are just at a point where this is what we get to do to make something better. So I said, yes, I believe in the science about the vaccine, which I know we're going to talk about. And I said, I want in. So Ren, what is in this vaccine? Because there's a lot of fact versus fiction. And there are some folks, especially folks in our community, meaning the Black community, who don't want to take it because some of the myths are, I don't want to get injected with coronavirus. So tell us what is in the vaccine and walk us through that. So first off, we have to acknowledge why we have so much distrust in our community. We have distrust in our community because the medical systems have failed our community. And so I understand why there are so many Black people who are incredibly hesitant and who are distrustful. And so it is incredibly important that we take these opportunities to separate fact from fiction. So first off, there is no live virus in the vaccine, meaning the vaccine has no little bit of coronavirus in it. It has an mRNA particle which goes into your body and tells your body, hey, this is the program to make antibodies against coronavirus. So because it's not giving you anything live, you're not getting coronavirus. You are simply getting, and literally it's like a booklet that has instructions on how you would fight coronavirus. Is it a step-by-step booklet for you to get your game on track, not your book pushback? Yeah, that's exactly you know what, what That's fine. You got to get in your little lyric. I'm trying to learn here, man. Okay, I'm sorry. I forgot what this is learning. Are you the one in class who's going to distract us while I'm trying to listen to the teacher and you're sitting here drawing and doing things in your trapper keeper? Fine. Anyway, I'm listening, Dr. Police. She's I'm writing listening. notes to boys. Did she stop? Did she stop? I don't think she stopped. <laughs> no, she did not. <laughs> <laughs> so what it has, in addition to that, it has other components that you might find in household medications and other packaged medications. And so when we think about what the risks are to any vaccine, the risk to any medication, all of medicine is risk versus benefit. 
is. So we have a risk of a vaccine, but because it's not a live virus, most of the scientists and doctors believe that the overall risks are relatively low. They certainly outweigh the risk of getting coronavirus. So the benefits are what we are here to say, look, I am excited that now that I have received both of my vaccines, my chance of not getting coronavirus in the future is incredibly high because there is a 95% efficacy or there's a 95% chance to make me immune to coronavirus. Hmm. And is it FDA approved? We are currently under the emergency use authorization, which means that the FDA is giving us the ability to release it to the public early because we are in the middle of a pandemic, essentially. It does mean, though, Jason, to answer your question about was it mandated, it would be very rare and unusual that they would mandate a vaccine for people to take if it's not fully FDA approved and it's still under the EUA. So this comes into the generalized fear that people have. And I want to contextualize this question. You've got different kinds of people who are afraid to take the vaccine or don't want to. You've got your anti-vaxxer people who you can make a Venn diagram with them and MAGA folks and folks who think there's a pedophile ring out of a pizza joint in suburban D.C. There's those people. And then you got black people who are like, hey, look, I don't think that most of these medicines are made with black people in mind. Maybe they don't test enough on us. Maybe it's going to be some sort of weird experiment. And so you have large numbers of people. I can use, say, for example, my students at Morgan as an example, who are like, I'll take it. I'm just going to wait six to eight months. I want to make sure it doesn't grow horns and turn people into animals or something. What would be your pitch to black people who may be open to taking the vaccine, but they want to wait to some indeterminate time in the future before they do so? What would you say to those people? Because that's different. I think the majority of people fall into that category, as opposed to I'll never take it. They just want to wait because they're nervous about taking it now. I completely agree with you, Jason. The comments that we are hearing from the Black community are very specific about what our actual fears are. So one fear is that the vaccine was not actually tested enough on us. The truth about that is we don't like it if it's tested on us, and we don't like it if it's not tested on us. So that's a hard one for us to actually win. The original clinical studies of the vaccine were done in Europe. There were definitely Black people, though, represented in the Pfizer studies that were done in the United States. So that is a good thing that we actually signed up for clinical trials and were enrolled in the clinical trials. Good thing. Fiction is that the vaccine was tested on tons of kids in Africa. That is fiction. So my answer to your question about why would you not just wait? We don't have time to wait, Jason. When we are dying at three times the rate of non-Black people and we want to sit around and just say, well, maybe I'll give it a little bit more time. Time is actually not on our side. We know Black people who've lost 10 to 20 family members from coronavirus in an eight-month time frame. So think about what that means in the next eight months. At our hospital, for example, we have a 40% difference in the uptake of the vaccine. If your name came up on the list in whatever, it had nothing to do with your title. It had to do with how at risk you were based on how many COVID patients you saw. We are seeing 70% white saying, yes, I will take the vaccine now. 30% non-white saying, I will take the vaccine now. What does that look like as we watch this time over the next eight months when this pandemic will continue because we will not be able to get control over it? So that's what I I would say. And again, there's a supply and demand thing. We're hopeful that we have enough vaccine to go around. But when your chance comes, I would say sign up for it. No questions. Right. I just want to circle back really quickly because when I asked about the FDA, you essentially said, and I just want to make sure I got this right. It sort of has an emergency pass. It hasn't gone through all of the hoops and whistles because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Is that so what would you tell black people who are like, uh, I want to wait for like the second or third round, link the FDA and this hesitancy for us. We are under the emergency authorization. This is still not though considered like trial and Era. They actually do feel like we have looked at it with a lot of people, 30,000 people in each trial. With that said, that's not 300,000 people. And so what we're doing, the doctors and people who were given the vaccine early, we have the opportunity to do is to sign up for the CDC's V-SAFE program, vaccine safety program, where every day I get a text message from the CDC asking me about symptoms, asking me about soreness, fevers, chills, malaise, 
disease? Can I work? Are these symptoms bad? So that they can collect this information and be able to say to the public, now that we've vaccinated 300,000 people, this is what this looks like. And so sure, 30,000 people is a lot, but it's not the same as 300,000. And I think we have to be realistic about a few things. One is as you vaccinate more people, some side effects are likely going to show that didn't happen before. How bad we think these side effects are is actually what matters. And if you're not talking about a live virus, again, risk versus benefits, we are willing to accept the side effects as being worth it to prevent something as bad as coronavirus. Speaking of that, when you're talking about a large number of people who have to go, I was watching a news report a couple of days ago and they were saying a lot of third world countries are actually better at this than we are because they've had to do huge vaccinations for malaria and stuff like that. They make it a big celebration. It's over the weekend, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard people talk about herd immunity, which is the idea that you eventually get so many people who are immune to the disease that it sort of protects. And even if there's a small outbreak, it doesn't spread that much because so many people are immune. I have heard that at our current rate of putting out the vaccine, it would take almost 10 years for us to get herd immunity. But what is the percentage for herd immunity? How many people in your community, how many people in a state, what percentage of people in the country have to have the vaccine pumping through their veins before we would have herd immunity? Immunity can be gotten from both vaccine and from actually getting the disease. The concern is that the immunity, if you actually just have coronavirus, won't stay as long. And so the vaccine is supposed to give you immunity for longer. The truth is we don't actually know for coronavirus. We're estimating somewhere between 60 and 90% of the population. And you have to imagine when you have 60 to 90% of the population being immune, we have vaccinated a lot of people to get that herd immunity. But also people with weaker immune systems and children are still being born. So it's hard to catch up to that 60 to 90%. And then you mentioned the people who are opting out of vaccines. So as you think about community in the largest sense of the word, it's going to be very difficult for us to get to 60 to 90% because we're waiting for either people to get vaccinated or people to get really sick and hopefully get a lot of antibodies. And we have to think about the numbers of people who are still entering into the society. Vaccination is our best option and we have seen it work in other countries. We've seen it work in this country when we vaccinated against things like chickenpox, polio, all these big bad things that we've seen in the past. But coronavirus is going to be a different beast. We're literally watching a health disparity as our communities say, I don't want to engage in vaccination. And as you mentioned originally, it's not just the anti-vax community. It's now two different communities. So Ren, you tweeted something the other day and sort of, I'm the politics chick, you're the medical chick, you're the one who brings in all the human beings into the world every day. But you said that the events of January 6th, and Jason and I were just talking about the insurrection on the Capitol, you said it had a direct correlation for you to COVID and what we're going through right now. Can you walk us through that and explain that for us? When I think about systemic racism and what Black people go through every day in this country, we think about systemic racism probably in different ways because I'm every day going into the hospital. And so I'm thinking about what racism looks like as a patient, what it means to be discriminated against, what it means to come into a place and have a doctor or a nurse judge you and have you not feel comfortable enough that you continue with medical care. You all look at it in many different ways, but we all know that systemic racism is all of this. It's police brutality, it's healthcare inequalities, it's voter suppression, it's housing discrimination, it's redlining, it's all of these things together. But my experience as a Black person is different from your experience as a white person. And when we think about what Black people are concerned about about the vaccine, they are concerned about getting a tainted vaccine. They're concerned about vaccines getting sent to poor zip codes and the CVS is actually giving you a vaccine that's not the same as the one I'm getting at Penn. White people are not thinking about that. If they're not going to get the vaccine, they're not worried that they're getting a tainted vaccine. And when we watch those people hanging literally from the walls of Congress, every Black person in this country said, there's no way that could be one of us and not be shot down dead in the middle of the street. And so when people are thinking about this process, they're thinking the same thing, which is, does this country actually care about me? I've heard patients say, is this a genocide attempt? Was coronavirus brought over here to take out Black people? And the people who weren't taken out by that are now going to be taken out by a fake vaccine. We 
have to address that because that's a concern that we're only seeing in our community. That is not something that's being brought up by other folks. As doctors who are really trying to be out here being vaccine advocates, we also have to think about what are the methods and the steps that the hospitals is going to go through to actually increase vaccination? So as we thought about setting up all these like pop-up clinics for vaccination, my suggestion was, hey guys, we got to be careful about that because a pop-up clinic in West Philadelphia, where I am, in Harlem, where you guys are, in Brooklyn, may not actually be as well received from the Black community as you think it might be. If people are concerned about different vaccines being sent to the pop-up clinic, maybe that's not actually what we should spend a lot of effort on. You've given us a lot to think about, Jason. How you feeling? Honestly, Dr. Polite, I want to say this, I know we're supposed to wrap this up. I'm not optimistic. When I look at how our government is structured, when I look at the concerns that people have, when I look at the cultural conflicts and the insurgency that we've got going on right now, I am not optimistic that I'm ever getting back into a damn movie theater. I'm not optimistic that this is going to be handled in some significant way. You are on the front lines. What can you tell us that would make those of us who actually want to get better feel remotely optimistic about our battle against COVID? Because as of right Right now, I don't see a lot that suggests to me that we're going to be in a significantly better position by 2022. Jason, I will tell you, this is the first time I have felt hopeful in a while. First off, just getting the vaccine. When you go up to our floor where the vaccine is being administered, people have volunteering to administer the vaccine. They're finding more and more volunteers. It's like the best place to be in the hospital. Because understand, when we're in the hospital, there's actually the code for the COVID patients who need to be intubated. We all know what that sounds like. We know exactly what floors the COVID patients are on. I'm there doing happy things like delivering babies. And I know when they say anesthesia stat to this floor, that then means another COVID patient is about to die. And so we're so used to hearing this sound over the last eight to nine months that now when you go to PCAM 15, where we get our vaccine, people are literally like, this is our way out. Jason, that hope does come with the idea that we will have some uptake. And I will tell you the other way that I have found hope is going out and having one-on-one conversations. We now have doctors going to the huddles of the custodians, of the cafeteria workers, of patient transport, and just saying, hey, I'm a doctor, but I'm here to answer your individual questions and concerns about the vaccine. And what we have seen is people have said, I really appreciate these conversations. This is information I didn't know. This is misinformation that I had. I'm actually willing to engage in this vaccine and I wasn't before. I got in the elevator today and somebody told me, hey, Dr. Polite, by the way, just so you know, I got my first dose of the vaccine yesterday. Somebody who wasn't necessarily going to get it. And so that's the hope that I see. Like you mentioned, we have a lot of folks who are not a hard no. They just have to get the right information to be able to make the right decision or the decision that is best for them. That's why I'm now hopeful, Jason. Now, I'm not still promising you that it won't be 2022, but maybe it'll be 2022 instead of 2025 before we get into a movie theater. Brittany, I think we should make a date where we take Jason to the movies when we're all free and clear. Yeah. The Greer Girls take Jason to whatever sci-fi, Marvel, comic, movie, nonsense That's he wants what to we'll see, be watching. but we'll do it. <laughs> Jason, you don't want that. We both talk during movies and we'll sit on the opposite sides of you and it'll be gabbity yap yap. I won't same sit anywhere near either of you. <laughs> <laughs> for any circumstance. I just want you to take me to the movies. I'll ignore you both. That's a promise. On this podcast. I will call a white usher on both of you. I will be like, <laughs> excuse me, these two colored women, I don't care that they have degrees. They're a problem and they're making me uncomfortable. I think we've established, Jason, that the black ushers actually might be right. better off for you. Because <laughs> that's what would have stopped all this nonsense at the Capitol. Right. That is true. They have batons. So, Rennie, are there any side effects to the vaccine? People are definitely hearing that the second shot of the vaccine is harder on your body than the first. 
And that is true because the immune system has been primed or pumped. And by the time you get the second shot, there's more people who are having side effects like fever, chills. And some people are like laid out and need to call out of work. It is incredibly important that we remember those side effects mean the vaccine is actually pumping into your body and getting that appropriate immune response. It is not coronavirus that you are getting. And it is infinitely important that people realize a day of feeling crappy from a vaccine is better than 10 days, a month or 10 months of COVID and hopefully even living through COVID. So I just want to make sure, because as there will be more and more people tweeting about side effects as more and more people get the second dose of the vaccine. And we just got to know to expect that. That's where we are, but that's not a bad thing. Right, and you can plan accordingly. You can and should plan accordingly. I mean, I operated the next day because I felt fine, but not everybody will feel fine because that's part of this process is that people will feel different. So Rennie, we won't keep you all night. I just want to say, now the world, whoever's listening to this podcast knows why I'm obsessed with Dr. Florencia Greer-Poli, a.k.a. Rennie, a.k.a. Best Big Sister Ever. I really appreciate what you have shared with us and hopefully folks will go and do a little more research if they're still on the fence. But Dr. Florencia Greer-Polite is an Associate Professor of Clinical Obstetrics and Gynecology and Chief of the Division of General Obstetrics and Gynecology at University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. This is why I'm the white chief of the family, Jason. Thank you so much, Dr. Polite, for joining us and informing us and making us feel smart. Thank you so much, Dr. Polite, for joining us. I can only tell you all, it's been an absolute pleasure to be the first guest on your podcast. I love you both and I really appreciate you having me. So Dr. Johnson, we got to talk about this insurrection. This is a moment that many of us predicted. We knew that this president would not go quietly into the night. He has been drumming up this type of vitriol and bile for years. He's been tweeting about it. He's been telling his supporters that they needed to be ready to stand back, stand by. He said that famously during the debate. He's been tweeting about his own vice president, something that we see in non-democratic countries, criticizing people in his own party, and even participated in a rally on January 6th. So when the FBI is scratching their heads like, we don't know how this happened. Well, we weren't prepared. If I knew that things were going to go down on the Capitol, how did the FBI not know? The president literally was tweeting about it. There were t-shirts me. There was merch. So we have these treasonous individuals flying the Confederate flag in the hallowed halls of Congress. And I think that to me shook me to the core, not just as a Black person, Jason, but as someone who lives in America, who has a blue passport. I think it's one of those things that everyone should be shook. But this is the same president who's like, I'm just going to be bills that say, if we want to get rid of Confederate monuments, I'm not with that program. We should keep them. Keep everything to all the treasonous, traitorous individuals. And so that's where I am. Still relatively zen about it all, though, just because this country doesn't surprise me. I'm not surprised by this behavior. This is who she is. You know, when all these members of Congress are like, this isn't who we are. Absolutely. Yes, it is. Come on, guys. I know this country. I think that's why I have a sense of calm and, dare I say, optimism, because I know that this is the country we're in and we have been able to emerge from it on the other side many times in the past. See, you sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his little speech. Did you see his little speech? Uh, listen, that was some great acting, Arnold. Yeah, it was very good. When you talked about it, when I you, thought it was a good speech, but still some solid acting. It's like when you tip up the sword and you put the sword <laughs> back and forth in the multiple bases. Look, I'm not zen about it. I think also because I was here in D.C. and I took my first trip to D.C. today. I hadn't been there in like a week because of I didn't know what was going on in the city. I'm not zen. What I am is anxious, quite frankly. For sure. The reason that I'm anxious is because I know that Joe Biden and Senator Harris and Nancy Pelosi have shown me absolutely nothing in their political lives that suggests that they are prepared for this moment. Nothing. You got to add Chuck Schumer in there because I'd put him at the top of the list, actually. 
actually. None of these people give me the slightest bit of comfort that they are prepared for this moment. None of these people lead me to believe that they're willing to do whatever is necessary and even things that we haven't thought of in order to stop this. And the problem is, if they're not willing to do anything, then this problem simply gets worse. If Chuck Schumer, who will soon be the head of the Democratic Party in the Senate, if he's not willing to say something like, I will give no committee assignments to any Republican and to 18 of you guys come forward to kick out Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. I don't have to give you committee appointments. I will give you none. Your party will essentially be locked out. The only thing you will be able to do is vote. I won't put you on any committees. If they're not willing to go ham like that, then they're not willing to deal with these people. And I don't think any of them are. That's what I'm left with. Listen, Democrats don't know how to play offense. They're always just like, gee, gosh, golly, I've got some power. Republicans grab that power. They don't let go of it. And they go hard in the paint. I've always said that Chuck Schumer is not built for this moment. I think that he and Joe Biden still think that they can work with the Mitch McConnells and Lindsey Grahams of the Senate and get things done. I have a little bit more faith in Pelosi. Confidence, I guess, in Pelosi only because her father was the mayor of Baltimore. That's all. But the way she's handled the 25th Amendment call from Pence and the way she's handled the second impeachment, it reminds me of when I was living in London, we would talk about the police, the Bobbies, and it's like, stop. Or I'll say, stop again. She's like, hey, listen, if you don't respond to me in 24 hours, I'm going to give you 36 hours to call me back. And then after that 36, I'm going to give you 48 hours to then answer me. <laughs> and if you don't answer me in 48 hours, then I'm really going to put back that 24 hours on the clock. And it's like, Nancy, put up the articles of impeachment, sis. We yeah. know Pence and the cabinet, they are lily-livered, insecure. They all quit rather than having to vote. Yeah. Hey, except for your boy Ben Carson, because he's sleeping someplace. He's not even aware of what happened. Yeah, he's done. He's done a fried chicken establishment. They're asleep at the wheel. Republicans are jumping ship like rats on the Titanic because they don't want to be the ones that actually have to vote for the 25th Amendment. So if we know that that's the case, then move forward, sis. So going to your point about not feeling confident about these people, business as usual on January 6th, although I understood it as a political scientist, Jason, I was very unsettled by the fact that far too many of our elected leaders were like, well, that happened. And it reminded me of these kind of Puritan values that America has always had, which has gotten us into this bind in the first place, right. where we never want to talk about what's on the table. We just want to pretend like, okay, so today five people were killed and people stormed the Bastille and they spread feces and they had treasonous flag. And so I'm going to tell some jokes. I'm going to give some speeches because you might be looking at me for 2024. And we're going to pretend that this horrid thing that just happened to our family, our collective American family, didn't just happen. It felt very kind of Prince of Tides to me. I haven't seen that movie in forever, but you remember some stuff went down and then they actually just like pretended it didn't go down. I have never seen the Prince of Tides. If you had said Bridges of Madison County, I might have vaguely understood. But if it's an early 90s romantic lady in the Midwest who falls in love with us, I'm confused. I've yeah. never seen Prince of Tides. Listen, listeners, back me up. There's something that went down in Nick Nolte's family and like it was horrid. And then they all pretended like it didn't happen and just went for breakfast the next morning. Some real horrible stuff. And I felt like that's where we were. Let's just pretend that we weren't just violated on so many different levels that we don't have Black people sweeping up glass and VCs right now while I'm making this speech and pretending that we're still strong. And I understand trying to project that for the sake of the kids, but the kids just saw what went down. So who are you protecting? It's like the mom in Lovecraft country who's like, yeah, I decided I was going to go on a global adventure and leave my daughter. To be <laughs> and my hair is blue. <laughs> but we're not going to talk about that. Look, I do see that. And I saw Joe Manchin on one of the Sunday shows. And he said something that as much as everybody looks at Joe Manchin as kind of a weaselly fake Democrat, he said something that I think is actually indicative of a lot of Democratic senators 
and definitely some Republicans is problematic when he said a real profile in courage was the people who came here initially with objections to the counting of electoral ballots, but after the assault on the Capitol, switched their minds. He's like, that's a real profile in courage. I was like, no, it's not. That's actually the opposite of a profile in courage. Because if you think that this was a stolen election, why the heck should people storming this building for that reason convince you to change your mind? If anything, it's indicative of the fact that you never believed it to begin with. It was just performance art. And now that you realize that you've created this monster, now you're shook in your boots. That is the problem, that you have too many people who don't even understand what political integrity is. This is what I've always said about any of this sort of stuff. Ted Cruz doesn't believe this stuff. No, he does not. Josh Hawley does. Tommy Tuberville does. Mo Brooks does. But Ted Cruz doesn't. So I have significantly less respect for people like Ted Cruz because I know you're performing. I know you're just doing this because in the irony, the godforsaken irony of I'm going to engage in anti-democratic activities in the hopes that it will position me better for a democratic process to run for president in 2024? What kind of moronic crap is that? But that's what these people are doing. And the fact that anyone can see any logic to that is indicative of the brokenness of our government and the people who run. I agree with you 1000%, Jason. And so moving on, moving forward, when we have someone like Ted Cruz and far too many Ted Cruz's in the making, I've always said, I'll be able to breathe a little more easily on January 20th. Not to say that everything magically happens on January 20th and we become the Democratic Republic filled with democracy that we've been promised. But the fact that Donald Trump will no longer officially be the president and Mike Pence will no longer officially be the vice president, I think that will help my blood pressure just a touch. But where do we move going past January 20th when we do have someone like Ted Cruz who will lie, cheat, and steal, who has zero moral compass, zero policy perspective? Let's be clear. If polling came out today that said Republicans think that this is a bridge too far and we need to change course, Ted Cruz would be leading that charge. He is a self-serving antithesis of what a public servant is or should be. He's a weatherman. And again, it's offensive because you know he's smart enough to know that this is BS. Yes. And he's doing it deliberately. And we've had a lot of conversations about, are we in a new reconstruction? We're definitely going to see probably a party realignment. I'm a plant. I tend to lean towards the sun. I lean towards the light. That's who I am. I know that we are going to have a rough few months. I know that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to have a very difficult first few months because the transition has been difficult. I worry about more domestic terrorism, even though Parler and certain websites are being shut down. These folks are not going to just say like, oh, well, well, my candidate's out. So I guess I'll just go back home and pretend that this never happened. I think some will. Yeah, yeah, some. But many will not. And they clearly, we are a bloodthirsty nation. But how are you feeling about the next few weeks after January 20th? I feel the same as I do now, which is they're going to get worse. And I've been predicting it's going to get worse for a long time. And once you move this out of Washington, D.C., this is the thing. If I shoplift at the local Quickie Mart, the local Quick Stop, or the local 7-Eleven, and I get out scot-free, or I get out with a warning from a cop, I'm going to try and steal something else. And I'm just going to keep going until I face serious consequences. This is the thing that people have to understand about what we just saw and why it's dangerous. If you are trying to tamp down a revolt, if you're trying to tamp down a revolution from people in your country, I am not suggesting this is what should have been done. I am saying historically, if you look around the world, you know the way that you stop revolutions from people? By responding to protests with incongruous violence. So people show up with flowers and signs saying, we want our indigenous lands back. You know how you stop that from being a bigger movement? You massacre people. That's what we see in Europe. That's what we've seen in sub-Saharan Africa. That's what you see in South America. That's what you see in the Middle East. That's what the native folks have seen when they've tried to protect their lands from pipelines. Exactly. In this country. So if you are trying to stop a movement, you have to respond to people with violence, state violence, that is so ridiculously over the top that they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. Shut it down. Okay. And that's 
that's not what happened. So these people who are going home now, who've made it home, even if they're getting arrested, even if they're a little afraid, the problem is when they try to engage in these same activities against a state capital where you don't have these kinds of resources. This is the thing where we go back to the junior high thing. I was running through my head. I was like, okay, what are the state capitals? I know. I was like, do I live near a state capital? <laughs> it was like Helena, Montana, Sacramento, California. Right. I think it's Phoenix. But if you're talking about a Phoenix, a Raleigh, and Atlanta or Richmond, you're going to have trouble doing that there. Those are major cities. They got resources, blah, blah, blah. But if you're talking about Lansing, Michigan, if you're talking about Springfield, Illinois, if you're talking about some of these smaller state capitals and you had this kind of attack, they're not going to be able to stop those people. And that's what concerns me. And Albany, New York, we know New York is red, red, red. It's just some blue cities in a big old red state, but a lot of important people where they're trying to get resources for New York City. Exactly. Jason, the next few weeks for us are going to be emotionally taxing. And I have to say, I'm so thankful to have you as my partner in trying to suss out what is in it for us in this particular moment in American history. Well, thank you, Dr. Greer. And I got to tell you this, what's in it for us right now is our very survival. COVID was bad, but COVID ain't going to be nothing compared to what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. We need to be prepared. We need to be educated. We need to buy our stuff. If you haven't bought a gun yet, goodness gracious, because what we're looking at over the next 18 months between the resistance to COVID and a resistance to what's going to be necessary to put this country back in order and all the crazy shenanigans that Trump is going to engage in once he's not restrained by office, what's in it for us is our very survival. And that's how we have to look at the rest of 2021. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcast at thegrio.com. Send the compliments to me. Send the complaints to Dr. Greer. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Kadoos. Uh-huh.